This is the Speaker for the Living podcast, exploring the depths of human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode, and thanks for listening. My name is Seth Dare, and I'm here with JJ Jen Flone, and I'm going to hand it off to you, JJ. I am taking over and taking control of the <laughs> podcast, and you guys have to listen to me sing. Um, how's everybody doing? It is essentially finals week for me out here and still in a school, academia, forever land. So I've gone a little bit stir crazy, but I'm trucking along. Uh, but I'm mostly just really excited to be here, not just because I get to hang out with Seth and I get to talk to you lovely people out there in internet land, but mm-hmm. because we have a very special guest uh, for this podcast. My good friend, one of my favorite co-authors to work with. The lovely Miss Kate Morgan. Kate Morgan, say hello. Hi, everyone. (laughs) Kate, do you want to introduce yourself and talk about yourself a little bit? Yeah. So as JJ said, my name's Kate, and I actually went to school with JJ and Seth. Uh, I recently just got my master's degree in international studies with a focus on reproductive health and human rights. And right now I'm working at a nonprofit organization here in downtown Denver as a program associate. So I'm out of the academic world, which is a mixed bag. But still doing research and writing reports. But still doing research and (laughs) writing reports and all this fun stuff. Yep. And so what did you go to school for? I went to school for reproductive health. That was my main focus while I was in school. I did an independent project and I did um, a research capstone involving that. And I wrote on the idea, basically my research capstone for grad school was this imagined idea of community within the nation and how forced sterilization campaigns among minority women are carried out uh, through three different frameworks that Dr. Yaval Davis coined in a lot of her research. And that's basically the Malthusian discourse, eugenics discourse, which everyone is either familiar with or very, very close on a close name basis with that because of World War II and the Holocaust. And the last one is public health discourse. So that was my main research focus while I was in school. Well, and that's actually perfect sort of a lead in because the reason why we brought Kate here, besides the fact that I just like her tons, (laughs) is that um, Kate is what I would consider to be one of the best people in the field still working sort of in this field on the intersection of human trafficking and reproductive rights. Normally when you see this mentioned in in a scholarly way, what you're dealing with is someone who is coming from more of a a medical background or through a legal discourse or even actually I've seen a fair book coming out of theology. So, so what are are the ethical legal or uh, theological ramifications? Yeah. The moral sphere of uh, reproductive, both reproductive health and reproductive control, but also this idea of reproductive justice. And if these terms sound kind of weird to y'all out there, don't worry, we are going to define them. We're not going to let you float around. Yes. out there. Um, but became, because Kate is so good at sort of this intersection, we thought that this would be a really good podcast to do, especially following up when we were just talking um, in our last podcast about the the selling and buying of children via adoption, which I think immediately sort of calls to mind the ideas of motherhood, of child right. creation. But reproductive health isn't tied solely to giving birth to a child. No, there's right? a lot of more aspects involved with reproductive justice that people kind of tend to overlook a little bit. Um, one of them being not only maternal, but paternal 
men having a right to to reproductive act- access, sexual education, um, services within the community to help with with sex education and uh, a healthy sexual experience. And then we talk about different vulnerabilities that people kind of come into contact with that maybe aren't as talked about, sexual orientation, gender identity, uh, SES, socioeconomic status, um, education level, age, ethnicity, religion, and all of those different resources that are encapsulated within those communities. So pretty much all the stuff that we talk about in human trafficking already as a vulnerability. Exactly. And then adding in sort of reproductive health as a vulnerability within that already vulnerable group. Exactly. It's just, it's a little Russian doll of bad. It is. It's just like a whole, like, smorgasbord of, of vulnerabilities happening. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah, again, you'd laugh because otherwise. Because otherwise you cry. <laughs> yeah. But I am excited that there's sort of a, a conversation, too, that it's it's not just women, that there's men and non-binary people, conti- you know, held within this exactly. group, too, because that's something that we've been trying to, I think, as a field, human trafficking has been trying to incorporate more because it focused so much on sex trafficking and sex trafficking of women and girls of course, for so long that expanding it out. Exactly. is very important to the discussion. So, and then maybe I'll go ahead and we can get started, I think, maybe doing like definitionally stuff at the front like i think everyone out there understands the word reproductive (laughs) yes you would hope if you're under under the age of 12 maybe consult an adult or the google before coming back to this podcast yeah depending on which is your more reliable that's that's why i added google (laughs) instead of just parents um oh i'm gonna get angry tweets for that um that's okay i love them though (laughs) but that's just laughing at me but (laughs) What, like, this idea of, like, so what what's the difference between, like, reproductive health or reproductive justice? Right. So there is a document that I will pull up eventually that kind of defines reproductive rights, reproductive health, and reproductive justice within the framework of overall what do those different, like, different terms mean. Mm-hmm. Rights being more of the moral aspect of it, if I can, if I can say that. Um, justice being the more legal side and health being the more obvious, like, medical health, public health discourse um but let me just dive into some basic topics based on the world health organization um reproductive health really implies that people are able to have a responsible and satisfying and safe sex life and then that they have the capacity to reproduce or not to reproduce and the freedom to overall decide if when and how often to do so so if you want to have 20 kids or you want to have zero kids or you want to have a hysterectomy or um at age 22 that is your your personal freedom sorry for that that is your personal freedom to do so and no one should be able to hinder that right from you and this also includes some trains of thoughts vary on this um but People should often have, or people should be informed of, and to have access to safe, effective, and affordable methods of birth control, um, access to appropriate healthcare services for sexual reproductive medicine, and implementation of health education programs. So comprehensive, comprehensive sexual health education um, seminars, workshops, trainings within public schools, private schools. There's like a whole other debate that could be a whole different podcast series. <laughs> but so that's basically kind of the the bones of it and then um who the world health organization also states that um 
to stress the importance of women to go through uh, pregnancy and childbirth and postnatal care safely and securely. So being able to have a baby and not die is is a baseline. And so would this then include things too, though, um, in, term, in terms of men, like men's access to circumcision or not? Of course. Oh, okay. So, so but like even things like that, like sort of prostate checks and things like yes. that. So yeah, anything, that's, any... that's completely comprehensive. Yeah. So anything that includes any realm of sexual health in any way, shape, or form, sexual health, sexual safety, um, is included in that debate, although it's not often talked about, or if it is, it's with a very pointed gaze and not then talked about for the rest of the time. So it's like labor trafficking. Of cool. course. Yeah. It's like a whole wide comprehensive circle of issues, but like we like to talk about like the little mini bubble mm-hmm. at the very end of it, which, which gets all the headlight. And that's usually um, abortion, contraception and sex health education. Okay. And so maybe this is a good moment to just sort of do a disclaimer that like some of the things we are going to be talking about are maybe going to be a little bit more of a hot button issue. Seth, do you want to talk about that a little bit more? Well, as somebody who uh, grew up conservative and has spent time in liberal circles, uh, recognize that there's a lot of strong opinions on reproduction and abortion and so on. And uh, like myself, I think abortion should be minimized. I think you're ending a life, etc. But I also think mother's health is a big factor that the entire reproductive process, it's complicated, that it's not just a matter of like a woman's life, but women's health. So, so all that to say is we're trying to look right here at the entire process and uh, recognize that those of you listening will have different opinions on things like abortion. Uh, anything you want to add, JJ? No, I mean, I think we're kind of from similar places. We talk very openly about how Catholic and Catholic, and so I think that that's a thing that's taken by uh, a lot of people is to be something that is very clearly, if you're Catholic, you're, you're very clearly anti-abortion, but I am... It's like a knee-jerk reaction. Yeah, but I am very much pro-choice, pro-woman's right to, right to choose. I have a few sort of, like, caveats about my personal feelings about the act of abortion, particularly term or late stage abortion okay but i think that i don't have the right to set just like no one has the right to tell me what particular theology to follow i don't have the right to control someone else's bodily functions and also i know lots of women who haven't been as fortunate as i have been in terms of access to healthcare support right. my community financial resources education yeah. etc and i can't make someone else's decisions yeah. for them trust me if i could there would be a lot of people who have tattoos that i would just say that they mm. should not right <laughs> not to, and everyone would have a tattoo. And everyone, every, no, and have. everyone, everyone would have a tattoo, but no one would have ones of like mustaches on their fingers. So I'm uh, just no regrets, not even one. Uh, regrets, <laughs> regrets. Um, right, and, and something else too is coming from a fairly privileged country where yeah. you know now you know where we've improved maternal care and infant care quite a lot. Like if you look at history. And if you look at all the countries in the world, good maternal health and good health once the child is delivered so as to avoid infant mortality and child mortality, like those are not a given. Mm-hmm. Correct. And so when talking about reproductive health, the context worldwide differ, and that's important. Yeah. There's not just one solid definition. It varies and it's fluid and it goes across nation- national borders. Yeah, I ended up 
doing, when I was a master's student, I did a series of actual lectures for uh, my local church organization on baby boxes, which are oh, yeah. basically child drop-offs, not, not altogether different from like a library book return in countries right. that don't have sort of um, safe haven laws where people can drop off unwanted or children who are unable to be are unable to be cared for right and so they were instituted largely by churches or other sort of ngos or igos in particular speaking of baby boxes that function in china to deal with mass infant mortality where children were just found abandoned and yeah. you know even if parents were trying to do the right thing by leaving them in a real crowded area maybe they wouldn't be found so but yeah so i think that these are all kind of important things to just prep people for that like we are going to be talking about things i think sometimes even just the word sex or reproduction makes people uncomfortable right so just to be ready for it so like one issue of reproductive rights is antebellum slavery where masters would have sex with their female slaves since there's no real consent that's rape and then they would have children children would also be property so they did not have reproductive rights in more than one fashion with antebellum slavery. We also, when we were talking briefly about monuments and sort of the debate about whether Southern monuments needed to be removed, one of the things we talked about was the the use in particular of black women. Um, Kate's been so kind to pull it up and we can, we'll link it to you as well. But J. Marion Sims, who's considered the father basically of Western gynecology, but more specifically American gynecology, Correct. who performed essentially heinous experiments on African-American women that he purchased as slaves to test reproductive health, to see how the reproductive system worked, to Correct. see if people could survive hysterectomies, if people could survive right. sort of opendectomies mm-hmm. and things like that, and did so without using any form of antiseptic yeah. or any form of like um, sterilization procedures, nothing. Yeah. Because for him, they were, they were literally just a, an, a lab rat extension. They right. were another form. Well, and then, uh, the, the popular discourse was that, um, African-American or black women couldn't feel the same level of pain as white women. So it was okay if this happened and they didn't really use proper anesthesia, proper sterilization techniques, because they were more quote unquote resilient or had thicker skin and, than white women. And if you actually look to though at, at modern medicine, one of the new things that's happening, I, I follow a particular blogger called Z Dog MD. He's fantastic. I highly recommend him <laughs> despite the name. Uh, who, who, was, who was who was no who was a, a doctor pushing for sort of mass healthcare reform in the US. Cool. And one of the things that they talk about is how minorities and women especially have their pain chronically underrated by doctors. So Correct. these these are beliefs that have perpetuated since slavery, particularly about this idea that sort of minority women can't control their own reproductive health, either because they are unable or undeserving. Correct. In some or they way. just don't know how. Or, well, that's what I mean. Is and that like they need, a, they need a white male doctor to like figure it out for them. Well, and I think this also goes down to, we've again, we've talked about it, poor little Reagan and his welfare queen you know, mythos. And so this right. idea of, of the creation of children that can't be cared for. Right. So when we're, when we're talking about reproductive justice, too, we're talking about, you know, trying to unpack decades upon decades of racism, misogyny, institutional discrimination and oppression of these marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. I'd like to also bring back the caveat to definitions real quick. I looked up 
um, the difference between justice, rights, and health. And I'm pulling this from a reproductive justice briefing book, and I will put this up in the sources, and it's open source, so anybody can access it. And it's there's an intro done by um, by uh, Loretta Ross, who is a huge, huge, huge reproductive justice advocate. She spent years in prison, and she actually hold on, I don't want to misspeak this. I'll come back to her story in a second. Um, but she is a huge Loretta Ross is a huge um, reproductive justice advocate, especially within uh, communities of color who are often unrepresented in the reproductive justice fight. Reproductive health focuses on service delivery, so that's when we think about public health, hospitals, clinics, what have you. Reproductive rights addresses legal matters, and then Loretta Ross, who is a huge proponent of reproductive justice and reproductive frameworks among communities of color, gave us this great outline of terms that are often used when discussing reproductive justice and reproductive frameworks within academia and um, community activism. And it goes, I think the original source is from the Arkansas Coalition for Reproductive Justice. And basically, um, health rights and justice are all broken down. So reproductive health deals with service delivery, and that is more of our public health, hospitals, and clinics, clinic discourse. And then reproductive rights addresses legal issues. And then reproductive justice focuses on movement building. So that's more of our activist piece. So I just wanted to go back to that and discuss that a little bit. Make sure that it's clear. But I mean, they certainly, I can see though how there's overlap though between right. every single one of those fields right. and how to work They're in all one field is kind of to work in the other ones. Correct. So I can see that like reproductive, like why you care about reproductive rights. I can of see course. that. I can see you care about them. But, you know, what does that have to do with human trafficking? Why are you, besides the fact that Seth and I saw a similarity <laughs> to sort of these topics we're discussing and we like you, but like, why are you, why are <laughs> you here, Kate? <laughs> why am I here? I have no why idea. Why do you exist? <laughs> so reproductive health and access to reproductive services extremely interconnected with trafficking. I'm just going to go pull through with the sex trafficking debate because it's an easy one to, for people to kind of relate back to. Okay. Um, we can talk more about labor trafficking in a minute. But with sex trafficking, there's a lot of reproductive health issues, um, STI spreading, um, HIV, abortion services, birth, pregnancy, um, overall general well-being of your reproductive organs are all extremely interconnected to sex trafficking. Not to say that they're not interconnected with labor trafficking, but that's kind of the go-to debate to be mm-hmm. had. And these are all intertwined with human rights, right? If you don't have access to reproductive health or services for um, sexual education or sexual rights, you're not getting your full human rights potential, which can place you at an, yet another vulnerability that you're already at. So how, how does it paint out, though, for people who are trafficked? So if I'm currently a victim of trafficking, okay. how, how does that impact? my ability to access sort of reproductive justice. Yeah, so um, it completely hinders your your ability to access these these resources for you. So to think about the the trafficking framework where all of your documents or all of your identity is, is taken into the hands of your controller, um, you might not even have an ID or you might be going under a fake or false name for so long that um, this creates an extreme level of distrust within government agencies, within hospitals, clinics, um, you might not even know that these resources exist because more often than not, you are taken out of a town that you know and you're placed in a very unknown city, unknown area. Um, it could be urban, it could be rural, you have no idea. And 
whether or not these resources exist is not the the debate here. It's that you may not know that they exist if you're being trafficked. So that creates a whole new level of complexity to this issue. Sure. Yeah, a very big one. So those are all kind of interconnected debates to be had when we talk about reproductive health, reproductive justice rights, what have you, in the context of trafficking. Um, you're less likely to seek out sources, clinics, hospitals, what have you, if you are having trouble. Say you feel a lump in your in your breast and you maybe know that that's not okay but how are you going to get to a hospital if you don't have a bus pass you have no idea how to drive a car or you don't have access to a car the only hospital that you know of is on the other side of town which is you know a two-hour walk or a hour and a half bike ride you have no idea where that's at you're not going to seek out those resources you're going to go into unsafe measures to try to achieve your means and i think i mean this is to because you you've brought up the the sex trafficking angle from the Freedom Network, an anti-trafficking organization. This is from a press release that they established in 2015 oh, nice. that contains narratives of a variety of all women. Oh, cool! Yeah, who who were in sex trafficking and sort mm-hmm. of their some of their needings. This is something that I'm definitely going to list as a as a trigger yeah. warning. I I would just move away for five minutes if violence is difficult for you. So, um, and these are all under fake names, but so from their ethnography, which of course I will attach, there's more here, but in particular, we have Mm -hmm. Constance who was trafficked from the Middle East to the United States by a family that kept her as a domestic worker. She was a survivor of female genital mutilation and was physically, sexually, and emotionally abused by her employer. By the time she escaped and found help from a service provider, she was vomiting blood, experienced daily headaches, and suffered from severe stomach pain. Eventually, her pelvic pain was mitigated with the use of hormonal contraceptives. Correct, yeah. So what we have, I think, in this case is we have somebody who had, on multiple levels, yeah. needs not just medical care, but, like, reproductive medical care, Correct. specifically, but, Right. that she's not getting. Right. And this brings up another really good point of sexual assault, rape, and sexual harassment within labor trafficking. Not mm-hmm. to say it doesn't happen, obviously, in sex trafficking, but it's more, yeah. uh, it's a little more invisible with labor trafficking. If you or, say, a trafficked individual who works in agriculture and you're working 16, 18-hour days and you get raped and you become pregnant, uh, how are you going to seek any type of information or contraception or any resources if you're working 16, 18, 20-hour days with no days off? I mean, you're not. And that le- that raises your risk for not only reproductive health, but just general overall health, mental, physical, what have you. It's all interconnected, I feel like. And the situations also vary between being a uh, female farm worker and being a female domestic servant where you're working in a household and they're able to control your movement and it's a very personal interaction. True. Yeah, another one that we have from someone who is directly in sex trafficking was Sarah, who was trafficked into New York from Azerbaijan and was forced to engage in prostitution from 4 p.m. to 4 a.m., seven days a week. She was subject to severe physical and psychological abuse, including slapping, punching, kicking, cutting, and burning. When she developed a vaginal cyst that caused swelling, pain, and bleeding, the trafficker ridiculed her and told her it would pass and ordered her to continue working. Correct. So you see sort of things like this happen in in both labor and sex trafficking designations to both adults and children. But we also see that in men and women. So we see we see this happen to men and women. And then again, like what I what I think is is happening too is that what we're seeing in the case of so an unspecified place in the Middle East, um, Azerbaijan, 
we're seeing Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan? Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan <laughs> is how we say it. Yes. See, I can't I got say you. these words. Azerbaijan. So we're, we're seeing victims from a number of countries that maybe in their home country, particularly if they were impoverished, they may not have had access to correct to, to top flight medical care right. or at least top or flight more traditional styles of yeah well especially since we have one that was a we have one victim Constance who was a victim of general mutilation prior to coming correct to and the that's US. a whole other ball of wax so we could try to untangle tangle they wouldn't time wise yeah <laughs> not enough time to solve all the world's ills in one little podcast true but we can help. it takes five <laughs> <laughs> it takes five like so yeah, those are some complexities that unfortunately trafficking only makes more difficult when we're talking about reproductive justice because with trafficked individuals, they are of a vulnerability, of a vulnerability, of a vulnerability. Mm-hmm. So there are multiple levels that are going on of oppression and discrimination and then you have all, you tack on the fact that they're trafficked and it just doesn't make anything better. One of the things that I would like to maybe bring up that I'd be curious about too is examples sort of of men within human trafficking. What, are, what is their access to sort of yeah. reproductive health? So I actually just attended a really cool conference as a part of my work that talked about, um, oh gosh, I think her name is Jessica Dowry. She is a consultant for the State Department, and she just created her own nonprofit called Bridge Hope. And she discusses men in the trafficking discussion and how we are poor, poorly lacking services to help them out on literally every realm. Um, the services tend to go towards minor women or minor girls in sex trafficking. And um, a lot of resources are pulled for that, which is amazing. However, when we talk about men in sex trafficking, it is often men and boys. We often kind of uh, shrug our shoulders and say, huh, I didn't know that existed. And I know at least on the Colorado level, we don't have any resources for, for boys or men. And I feel free to correct me or if someone corrects me, I would be really, really excited. Men and boys don't really have access to services if they are being trafficked in either sex or labor trafficking here in Colorado. They don't have a whole lot of reproductive health services um, open to them mm-hmm. that they could easily seek out besides maybe, you know, one individual provider who specializes in this work. And that's something that's lacking, at least on the local level, from what I can tell. Do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think, well, we had this when we talked about, um, or at least I, I did an, art, uh, an interview years and years and Years and years ago, I'm not that old. Uh, probably about three years ago, uh, for the Huffington Post about a male trafficking, male sex trafficking ring that had been broken up. Okay. And some of the reports coming out of, and I'll link to that interview. You guys can see what I look like in real life. It wasn't a great interview on my part. It was, <laughs> it was like three in the morning. But no. So what happened is you have um, a mixture of physical violence and sexual violence, which is itself physical. Too. Correct. So, so in particular, what guys are reporting is that they had had sort of like uh, anal ripage, yeah, uh, infections, secondary Correct. infections, testicular erosion, which can actually kill you. Yeah, oh yeah. And and basically, then too, you open yourself up to a number of sexually transmitted diseases and bloodborne illnesses. Whether uh-huh. you're male or female, that disease doesn't really discriminate against gender. It just against, happens. It just happens. But yeah. um, but yeah. nevertheless. Here it, is. Here, here it is. I think it's just important to remember that this reproductive health applies to men and women. And then I could see this applying mm-hmm. because when we talk about vulnerability, we have talked about sort of non-binary or trans people correct, falling, you know, into this huge vulnerability trap of, of not being mm-hmm. recognized. Are, are they at risk too? Oh, yeah. Um, I would put up the debate that even more so because 
we say women have access in in the realm of women have access, men don't have access. Where do non-binary and queer folks fall in this mm-hmm. category? They don't exist apparently in the public health eye, or if they do, um, it's very limited. They're often misgendered. They're often um, kind of not harassed, but well-meaning doctors don't really know how to to handle these situations, so they end up doing more harm than good. Mm-hmm. And that could place someone else at a bigger vulnerability because if they had a bad experience with with a hospital or a doctor or you know a walk-in clinic, they are more likely than not not going to go back in for any other services and just try to handle it by themselves. And one of the things that I do want to make sure our listeners know is that so we the plan is eventually that we are going to have a medical health professional talking about sort of what people in the front lines of healthcare can do in terms of recognizing warning signs and, and being helpful. Cool. We have um, an RN who, uh, Stacey Shelma, who specifically works with yeah. sort of human trafficking cases. She's going to come in she's with awesome. us. Yeah, she's great. But what I... For, for at least for this, I think, to how how does maybe to come to circle back to that, because that's kind of where we started. How does the ability to be fertile as a male or a woman or like carry exactly. a pregnancy to term? How does that tie in sort of with trafficking and this? I think this kind of goes back to your antebellum slavery example, Seth, right? Exactly. Traditional modes of <laughs> like control via children. Yeah. But I mean, to kind of go back to that, the the male versus female for doing the binary for a moment, I was just looking up on Google Scholar, just basic, you know, gender tracking, reproductive health. And the first two pages that I scrolled, they're all women and it's all sex trafficking. Yeah. So if it's, if it's not in academic literature or it's not as well known in academic literature, um, it certainly is not getting enough attention in either academic nor community-based involvement. And that's something where the literature and us humans and activists on the front line are are sort of lacking. Yeah, well, and with sex trafficking, just that, trying to think of different stories I've heard, like with, say, Amsterdam prostitution, there's enough regulation where there could be, like, medical checkups and things like that. But with sex trafficking, where it's a, a more disposable way of doing things, I mean, there's no guarantee that those who are forcing them into forced prostitution, that they're going to have adequate health care, adequate checkups, nor that the men are going to be checked up. I can't think of any example where that's been the case. Right. So just the potential health issues from sex trafficking and, and unknowns and STDs. And if we're talking about voluntary sex work, there's this whole debate of what initiatives or resources resources are in place for those that need them mm-hmm. and Amsterdam being an example um correct me if I'm wrong Seth where they like you said they do have these checkups that they could attend any kind of routine, routine examinations and whatnot but mm-hmm. in other places that may not necessarily be the case it's a little bit more taboo if not just not spoken about or downright uh, illegal and that could create a vulnerability a vulnerability within those populations that might have to otherwise seek other means as opposed to being safeguarded and getting these check-ins, getting these visits, and staying safe within their line of work. So where where do sort of children fit into this this idea of this idea of uh, reproductive health. reproductive health, or then sort of where and then and then further that where do children fit into this whole idea of like reproductive health within trafficking? Okay, so I don't know about the international perspective because I. I'm not an international law expert. However, I do know the state of Colorado for reproductive health services. Um, kids under the age of 18, I'm just going to say kids for lack of argument over um, age of child versus adult can be disputed in any realm. Um, 
the age of majority is like 16, 18, 21, right. depending. Like it completely depends on state and, the person you're and situation. Sometimes. Yeah. Right. Um, so children 18 and younger can access reproductive health services so they can access um, regular OBGYN visits, gynecology visits, pap smears, general practitioner um, appointments. They can do uh, contraceptive appointments at like clinics like Planned Parenthood, all this stuff. They can even access uh, abortions. The only caveat to that is that the person seeking the abortion, the child, the clinic would be, bear the responsibility of telling their parent or guardian 48 hours, I believe, prior to the abortion carrying out. So that carries its own bundle of complexities. However, children in the, within the state of Colorado can access these services even if they don't know that they exist. And that's part of where sexual health education plays a role in informing these children of these choices and these opportunities that they have. I can also see, too, one of the things popping up within this as a form of control, sort of maybe under the psychological coercion line, as oh, Seth, definitely. you and I had talked about in a previous podcast, is just access to medical care is another form of control. That, mm-hmm. well, if you're sick and you're hurting we, we or you're, you're worried um, because things are changing, we, I, we can take you to the hospital or we can take you to, like, a local clinic or we can bring in a midwife or something like that, mm-hmm. but it's going to come with added costs. So we're going to either, Mm -hmm. if you're being held in debt bondage, we're going to add debt to you. Yeah. We're going to add that on. Or if it's say maybe in the case of, well, we'll provide this for you, but it's going to be an additional year of service or we'll provide this for you. But now you can never actually return home to sort of your home village or Uh your home area because culturally this is, or religiously this is... You'll be rejected. Yeah, this would be seriously taboo. I know from growing up in a very conservative Catholic environment that if a rumor swirled that a girl had had an abortion or, like, had gone off her baby or even just that she had had sex. Correct. That, like, as a a kid, it just swirled around and and people were were ostracized. Oh, yeah. in In a major way. So I can just only imagine that if I'm coming from even a, a smaller more closed off. I mean, that's with the internet. Right. You know what I mean? Like, so coming, coming from more closed off society, especially if I, if people are younger, I can see why they would be afraid that they'd be ostracized from their mm-hmm. community. Right. Or they, they would be afraid that somehow their community find out, their parents would find out, their reputation would be tarnished in some, in some cultures. It's the, the family name carries a heavy weight. Mm-hmm. And so uh, if someone hears about this child getting an abortion or doing what have you, getting birth control, it could completely ruin the family dynamics that may or may not be in place. Yeah. And that's another fear that a lot of people have. So see, it's still, it's all down. It's all about control. It's all about managing people's access, you know, sort of to things that you would hope that in the outside world they would have access to and they don't. In the bubble, we wish they would have all the access. Yeah. How did you get into this, Kate? Like what, what sparked this? This interest? This interest in, because I know that when Seth and I have talked about it, what what brought us to the field for us, it was kind of a, a mix of like personal philosophy, inner, our, our faith tradition, right, and just sort of our belief about how things in the world are supposed to shake out. But how did you end up down this path? Yeah, so I guess I have two major milestones, I guess what I would call them, like my quote-unquote academic and personal journey to kind of propel me towards this direction. I grew up in a, as you know, JJ, a very, mm-hmm. very small town. I was going to say, I know, town. Yeah, I, I, know, I, know the, I know the answer to this, but the people <laughs> on the internet don't get to hang out with you, and they so they're missing out. Yeah, so I grew up in a very, very small conservative town in the Midwest, and um, quite frankly, there are, they're getting better, but when I was younger, there were no services available. 
for reproductive health, reproductive justice, what have you, they didn't exist. And my mom, actually, as corny as this sounds, was my main inspiration looking back on it. Uh, she was a labor and delivery nurse turned uh, lactation specialist. So now she works with breastfeeding for first-time moms, new moms, um, couplets as they refer to them in like the medical world, mm-hmm. a mother and a child. And she has a lot, a lot, a lot of education classes. She has like a daddy boot camp for first-time dads. Um, she does a partner breathing class. She does uh, infant CPR, all of these different classes. She has mom's meetings. And now she's doing this postpartum anxiety and disorder group therapy sessions to kind of raise awareness for different mood disorders experienced postnatal. However, uh, she kind of informed my worldview at a very young age that reproductive health is an encompassing issue. It kind of takes many different forms, many different varieties, and depending on the human, it can take a different definition. And one particular instance happened when I was in high school that kind of definitely like solidified my worldview. I was in ninth grade. We had to take this life careers and skills course that was required for all freshmen. And we had a abstinence-based only educator come in and speak about, well, what was the acronym called? CPR, creating positive relationships. And basically it was totally abstinence-based, totally fear-based, totally Christian-based. And it said, uh, you can't have sex till you're married. If you do, you'll die. Like we all know the mm-hmm. girls quote. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was very much like this fear-based rhetoric. And we had we, we could sign these forms if we wanted to be a born-again virgin mm-hmm. and all that fun stuff. And at one moment, she asked the whole class, mainly the girls, obviously targeted towards the, the, the girls in the room, does anybody know about the Gardasil shot, which, as we know, prevents or lessens your risk for HPV. Mm-hmm. And me being the daughter of a lactation specialist who got yeah. the Gardasil shots for free when she was 15, <laughs> raised my hand so proudly. And I was like, I got them. And she turned to me, pointed at me and said, you wouldn't need it if you weren't sleeping around with so many boys. And that was the moment. And I told my mom, I was crying. I was in tears. And she was like, the conversation happened where she was like, you should, first of all, never be ashamed for your sexual history or whoever you were sleeping with at the time. Second of all, it's extremely inappropriate, slut shaming behavior. And I will not tolerate that. And then she almost completed a lawsuit against the school because she was like, this is inappropriate behavior. This shouldn't be happening. Everyone should have autonomy over their own body. Um, You shouldn't shame, first of all, a kid. Mm Mm-hmm who you don't know anything about, you can shame their sexual history or their sexual preference or like what, not sexual preference, their sexual, um, that's what I'm looking for. Sexual history, I guess would be a proper mm-hmm. term based on that. That's, that's something, something that should be brought up in class. So that kind of solidified my view. I went to college. I got really involved with different reproductive justice movements involving like the, uh, the queer Alliance at Ball State university. That's where I went to undergrad and that kind of continued into my, my graduate career where um, I met a professor, Dr. Marie Berry, you know her, and she kind of talked to me about these issues of forced sterilization. And we got to talking and she was like, oh, you can do research on that. Yeah. And I was like, no, you can't. That's just kind of, I just know this stuff because it's fascinating to me. And I study the Holocaust for a fair amount of my youth, as one does. <laughs> and um, I came across this issue of forced sterilization and gynecology experiments among Roma, Sinti, and um, Jewish women. And she was like, no, 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 there's a whole lot of research on this. You should write a paper on it. And I did. I ended up writing a paper on it for her genocide class, which turned into my research capstone. And so those two kind of instances gave me the solidification and like the confidence 
to continue on this track of reproductive justice, both on an academic sphere and on a personal community-based level. Mm-hmm. Long drawn out answer for you. No, but that's, it's, <laughs> it's good to sort of people know what, how you got to the field and, and yeah. what you get out of it. I think it's kind of hard sometimes because when you choose to do something that is inherently depressing, oh yeah, people want to know why you participate in it. Like why you continue to go back to that space. Yeah, and I yeah. think and I think you know we've discussed too. I mean, definitely we're going to have you back to talk mm. about sort of. Uh, I think we have to about sort of Roma <laughs> populations or oh, sort of yeah. displaced populations. Like other- we just had a conversation about Inga. Yep. And and how there is stateless people. So I think there's a lot of overlaps within the trafficking of Roma people and sort of stereotypes and whatnot. But I think that there's something that people get really into with the sort of the intersection. I think it's just it's that image. It all goes back to the image of, you know, why do people care so much? Why do people you know, and I know that you've talked about sort of like your heroes in the field and you talked on Angela Dr. Angela Davis, but you talk about Loretta Ross a little bit. Oh yeah. So Loretta Ross, who is basically what I consider one of the top three women in reproductive justice conversations. She, I think she is a, like an associate professor, I believe in, says on her bio at Hampshire college in um, women's studies. And she talks about white supremacy, gender, uh, intersectionality, feminism, and the notion of reproductive justice. And she recently just wrote a book, I believe I just purchased it. It's called The Reproductive Justice Handbook, a trainer, or an introduction, sorry. And she co-writes it with Ricky Solinger. Yes, so, yeah. Yeah. Okay, Ricky Solinger. And then um, it's it's a primer to kind of give the introduction to what is reproductive justice, where does this play a movement in the U.S. in a historical context, because as we know, eugenics was, like, really backed up by the U.S., mm-hmm. um, namely in Indiana, where I was born and raised, and it continued on to be this research powerhouse that eventually reached international borders. So, back to Loretta Ross, she was sterilized at the age of 23, and that's kind of that and her past experience with uh, the Black United Front and an officer for the Citywide Housing Coalition those kind of activist roles played a role in uh, this sterilization process that she experienced. And she kind of, I guess, found her way, for lack of a better word, to reproductive rights and anti-violence activism. She became one of the first women to win a suit against A.H. Robbins, who is a manufacturer of the sterilization device. And she became a director of the D.C. Rape Crisis Center. And she's gone on to found um, Sister Song, which you guys can find on Twitter. And they have a website which is a huge national movement for reproductive justice for communities of color, specifically women identifying individuals. And she is a frontline activist for reproductive freedom within black populations, marginalized populations. And um, she is an incredible human. I mean, I'm just reading over um, some of her basic bio stuff and it's just director of this, director of that, founder of this. And I can put up a few of different websites of her bio, but I won't go into all the specifics, but she is definitely a critical, critical individual when talking about reproductive justice, both on the activist and the community front lines, the front line activism. And then we all know of Dr. Angela Davis. Yeah, I think. Obviously, another huge monumental woman fighting for reproductive justice. I think we sort of talked about why why this matters sort of in a moral way, right? Or an ethical way, or in sort of a, if you care about justice or the legal system or sort of everyone having equanimity in the law. We've talked about that. 
we've talked about why it matters if you care about sort of the softer side of human trafficking. Of course. How, how people interact, how that all fits in. But here's my question. Yes, pose it. Why does this matter in terms of like a global health issue? Like why, let's right. just say that my name is Clarkson and okay. I don't care <laughs> about <laughs> human trafficking. I don't care about reproductive health for other people. I'm not really worried about it. Why is this an issue for me? personally why should why should i be upset about this i mean there are so many answers to this question um why should you matter if it's not the moral moral or ethical debate if that Mm -hmm. doesn't grab you why is this important to the average person i mean i guess it affects everybody at a different level you could just not care and that's fine Mm -hmm. that's your motive or that's your mo however more likely than not you know someone who knows someone who has been affected by reproductive injustices in this world and if it doesn't matter for you, I guess matter for a friend. I don't like to pull that debate out. Yeah. Because everyone's different and everyone should just care about things because they should care about them. But thinking about public health, thinking just mo- mo- on the most basic line of STIs or STDs, you don't want those outbreaks. We've been trying to, to curtail and do STI education, safe sex practices, and you don't want those to spread or to contain the volume that they may have contained in the 80s or 90s. And we've tried to veer away from that. So if not for the ethical or moral reason, for the sexual reason yeah. of uh, just like putting on a condom or so having an IUD or like something along the lines of that this is like sexual health for you, for your individual self, so you can maintain healthy in this world. <laughs> so it's basically that it's a global health issue because other people's healthfulness then reflects on yours. It relates back to yours, yeah. And also just like then like the economic cost of correct preparing for people. Right, because if you if we have these outbreaks, national money will have to go towards it and depending on your personal fiscal ideology, maybe you do or don't want those to yeah. want that money to go towards those services. And if we don't have to spend those on those services, that would be excellent. No matter where your political yeah. ideology lies. <laughs> Because that means there's an outbreak. Right. And all of that gets to the heart of what public health is, but we haven't really explicitly said that. So could one of you define that for people who may not know? Public health? Yeah. So public health, I kind of only know of it more on the academic side. So correct me if I'm wrong or I'm becoming too uh, textbooky. But public health is more of the um, science of preventing disease and prolonging life and promoting basic human health Mm -hmm. through um, organized causes and informed choices through different avenues such as organizations, public and private sector, community, society, and on the individual level. And there's a whole body of research on like population health analysis and this public um, that's in question is basically everybody in the world with different focuses on communities or public health looks different in say Malaysia than it does in Chicago, but they both have public health initiatives that are specific to their communities or their towns. Does that kind of answer the question a little bit? I think so. Uh, one one thing I've thought of with public health is things like food safety, where I've heard somebody in Congress you know, <laughs> question, like, why should we force places to have people wash their hands? And why, why should we have these food safety laws? Because if we don't have them, then people just won't go there. Well, if something happens where there's a health e- epidemic because of a virus or whatever, what have you, because of a bunch of people eat at a place 
where there's something that gets spread, there is a cost to that and that that cost can have an impact on a community or that there's a a health that goes beyond the individual or a small group of individuals that can cost the public at large. Correct. And the hand washing is definitely a hot button issue. (laughs) Really? It still is to this day. Um, And breastfeeding vaccinations, childcare delivery, um, suicide prevention, mental health, as well as controlling the spread of STIs is all definitely on the public health radar. Think of it more as the medical component of human rights and health. And then there are other practices um, within different disciplines that kind of control different avenues of that. So psychologists and psychiatrists may do more of the suicide prevention and mental disorders aspect of public health and so on and so forth. Yeah, and I advise everyone uh, who's interested in reproductive justice but doesn't know exactly where to start to read Reproductive Justice, a briefing book, which is a basically a huge primer on justice related to reproductive aspects and social change. And basically each chapter is writ- is written by a different doctor or medical professional or activist within the field that are making these real life changes. So I will put that up in part of the citations. Perfect. People can read that at their leisure. And it's open source, so anybody can access it. One of the things that immediately pops up for me is sort of this idea that losing control over your body is probably one of the, the worst things that can happen human being, the feeling that your body doesn't belong to yourself. And so when you are trafficked, what's happening is that your ability to control sort of where your body goes or what your body's going to do, that's taken away from you. But sort of this issue of reproductive justice says that it takes away sort of your body's internal processes that only you should really have access to or maybe Mm -hmm. a trusted partner and putting them entirely in the hands of somebody else who has no desire to protect you or no interest or in protecting no you besides interest in well-being and your, in your well-being but beyond your ability to continue providing for them economically exactly so to me it just seems like it's even more of a loss of control and i think that maybe that this kind of ties directly into when we've talked about previously on this podcast about why traffickers will use drugs or alcohol to exactly. as as a control tool mm-hmm. And I think this is the same way. It's it's that I'm going to make you give up a portion mm-hmm. of your body. And I think then, too, it's this idea of particularly for, for, for men and for women, I think your ability to be fertile is tied so much into our I- identities. Correct. Right? Like, I think, no, I can't speak for, for a guy, but I, I certainly have, have heard about male friends of mine who are having sort of fertility issues on their end. And, and sort of their thing is not feeling as virile, not feeling, you yeah. know, or maybe with issues of impotency, you know, feeling exactly. that they're not, that they're not complete men, particularly yeah. from like very traditional or conservative societies. Yeah, we're taught in very, very basic terms that if you can't produce a child, then like what use of you are you? Or even beyond like childbearing, but sort of for men to be sexually potent. Like their ability to have sex. Exactly. Yeah. And then I know that as, as a woman, I think I've talked about this podcast or not, but like I'm an infertile lady, right? Mm-hmm. With a husband and a partner and from a conservative Catholic background. And I, even for me, who thought was somebody who popped out of the womb saying, I'm never having children. I'm just going to have <laughs> cats. When that I, sounds right. <laughs> yeah. When it, when it became clear to me that like I wasn't going to actually be able probably to physically have kids, Correct. even though I didn't want them, I still felt like betrayed. 
Right. Like, like I, my body was created to do a thing. It can't do that thing. Why is your body not working? Why is my body not working? And so I think to have the ability of my body to function taken away by an individual for the purposes of making money or for their own benefit, I think would be so scarring and would have lasting impacts beyond just sort of my health issue. Exactly. But, but yeah. into sort of my psychological, my mental health and my emotional health moving right. forward, positioning myself. Now, I can't speak for victims. No, but but just that that's that's something that I could perceive being right a, a major issue because you're already dealing with a lack of bodily autonomy within your world, mm-hmm. and then this is another aspect of your life you was was given was forced away from you as put in the hand of someone who just doesn't care about you. Yeah, no, it's a it's a depressing note to end on. <laughs> I know. Well, okay, so let's repeat, let's let's end on a positive note. Yeah. What is a positive way that people can help? Yes. So one of the ways that you can get informed slash try to combat and create changes, I know Planned Parenthood, if you want to volunteer or work for them, they always have uh, sexuality or um not sexuality, sexual education specialists mm-hmm. who train these these people train um educators basically on discussing sexual health within the workplace within uh school systems within individualized training sessions to kind of give get the education get the information out because research shows that if people are educated on all different types of issues they can make more uh, safe and informed decisions based on sexual health and reproductive justice or reproductive rights, I'm sorry. Another thing that you can do if you are located in Colorado is, let me find the information about it. Um, you can look up the Colorado Sexual Health Initiative and the Personal Responsibility Education Program, which is also known as PrEP. These are two really big, not only training programs, but also just really good guides on understanding um, consent and confidentiality within mm-hmm. Colorado among uh, reproductive health. And then, so PrEP, Personal Responsibility Education Program, is basically Colorado's version of comprehensive sex education, which is actually backed by the, the Colorado government, in case we didn't know that. And this kind of gives federal resources, uh, local resources, and information about what you can access here in Colorado. And a lot of these services that they refer out to are billed under separate grants so that they don't go back to parents, guardians, or otherwise unspecified caregivers. So it's completely confidential. And like I said, at least minors, they can access a lot of different um, contraception and reproductive health services without their parents, guardians, or caretakers knowing. And that that's something that can kind of replace that bodily autonomy within that individual to feel like they have control over their body and their self when accessing these resources. And I think, too, that that's important because I, I, I could see people hearing that and being like, whoa, children and their parents should have access to the same. But what I think we have to remember is that normally people who say that are coming from a place with, like, loving caring parents Parents. and And like that's not always the experience and in the human trafficking field unfortunately what ends up happening a lot is that people are trafficked by close family members Mm. by trusted community members by people in the field that they they would otherwise that you would otherwise go to if you were in an emergency so not unfortunately this is going to sound terrible but not all trusted adults are created equal uh, no, and sometimes the trusted adults are the ones that are perpetrating these complex systems of violence against mm-hmm. individuals, whether they are minors or adults. Um, so being careful of that and being mindful of that is also another factor. Most people who are trafficked are not trafficked by a snatch situation. They are trafficked by families, um, friends, community members, and 
this is the problem that we're that we're running into is the fact that maybe the person maybe if you know you're a youth seeking an abortion maybe you know the father is the one who is perpetrating these systems of violence against the individual and you do not want that parent knowing that information about that child that's something that you want to keep as confidential as possible Mm -hmm. so having these systems in place to remain confidentiality gives some uh, independent nature back into these individuals is extremely important do you have anything else to add that's that's about it. I thank you so much for, for coming in to to talk about this, to sort of put yourself out there yeah. and, and give sort of these details. We will definitely have you back if you will have us. Oh, of course. Is there if people have specific questions for you, should they contact us directly or should they Um you can do one of two things. You can either tweet me. Uh, I have a Twitter. So my my name is at Katie underscore the lady. Cool. Yeah. So that's my Twitter name. So if you want to tweet out some questions to me, feel free. We can have a conversation online. If you want to do something a little bit more private, my email address is kemorgan4 at gmail.com. And we can have a discussion on there as well. So yeah. Nice of you to give out your, your personal info yeah. there, my darling. Oh, yeah. Wait, wait until the... Creepy didn't tell you. Thanks, Roland. Let me just tell you. Like I have an experience. Ah, that's true. (laughs) Look at the field you work in. Right. No, I, yeah, another one of, finally, maybe for for a final comment is, I think, just to maybe sum it up, is that reproductive justice should matter to everybody. But particularly human trafficking victims that are already so vulnerable don't need to have sort of this fundamental part of the human experience taken away from them or controlled. Exactly. By traffickers. And so it's important that we do our absolute best to sort of support them. Getting available resources and Mm -hmm. autonomy over these resources, whether they want to seek them or not. Exactly. Correct. There we go. And and just that the world out there can be really harsh and terrible, guys. So it's important to love and pet puppies. And I don't know. This is this is the part of the end of the podcast where I'm like, oh, poor. And like the end of a whole the discussion. End. <laughs> right. Rent a dog. Right. Yeah. That's a thing. Yeah. It's a thing. There's um, a really fun app you can do now. It's basically like Postmates, but you walk someone's dog instead of like delivering food. I have heard that. It's called go. Wow. Uh, yeah, and that's a fun thing that exists. If you ever need some puppy love, just sign up for that. Go to your local dog park mm-hmm. and love on some puppers there. There you go. Practical things you can all do. Yeah. <laughs> to change the world. <laughs> to change the world. <laughs> so I think we're done. Yeah. All right. Thanks for joining us, Kate. And thank you all for, for listening. Bye. Bye. World. Bye. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.